From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, one of our heroes died on Monday. Paul Farmer, he brought high-quality health care to some of the poorest people in the world, starting in Haiti. Amy Willens was a friend of his. She'll talk about him later in the hour. But first, the Canadian truckers' protest has come to an end. Was it really a working-class movement? Jeet here explains in a minute. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. The Canadian truckers' protest has ended. Was that really a working-class uprising? For comment on the political implications for progressives, we turn to Jeet here. Of course, he's a columnist for The Nation. We reached him today in Regina, Saskatchewan, the birthplace of Canadian socialism. Jeet, welcome back. Good to be here. Well, first, let's talk about how big this was. Hundreds of trucks occupied the streets around Parliament and... The protests shut down key parts of the capital city, Ottawa, for more than three weeks. Then the truckers blocked the International Bridge from Detroit to Windsor, Canada for almost a week. It's the busiest border crossing between the United States and Canada. They say more than 25% of all the trade between the United States and Canada crosses that bridge. So is it fair to say this was really big? It was very big in terms of its impact, not so big in terms of its size. I mean, I think one of the advantages of driving a truck is that you can like loom much larger than you do. Now, <laughs> like at the border at uh, Windsor, Detroit, you know, there's a point at which it was like just like a handful of rigs. And in Ottawa, okay, there was like, you know, a, a couple of hundred trucks and then some people, uh, locals joined in. So I think the best estimate is that at the maximum point, there's around 8,000 people. Now, to give a point of comparison, uh, in 2019, there was a um, nationwide climate uh, protest, which garnered over a million people, and including like uh, half a million people in Montreal. And uh, earlier in the uh, previous decade, uh, there was a st continuous student protest in Quebec, which garnered hundreds of thousands. And in 2003, uh, anti-war protests in Quebec, again, nearly half a million people. So like in, this, in terms of like a large protest, no. In terms of a protest that actually shut down the capital and the border, yes. And that raised all sorts of questions because I don't think if it was like a climate protest or an indigenous protest or a homeless protest, the cops would have let uh, the city, let alone you know the main artery of North American trade be shut down. 
Well, the place where it was biggest, I think, was on Fox News and right-wing talk radio in the United States, which talked about this. This was their lead story for, for a couple of weeks. Uh, one conservative pundit said, uh, this is the biggest labor action I recall seeing in my life, and the left is on the other side of it. It has to do with the shift in the Democratic Party, which used to be the party of the working class and now is the party of the pajama class, close quote. And Glenn Greenwald uh, sarcastically tweeted, many people love workers in quotes, but not actual uh, workers. Now, progressives have replied to this, that the truckers were led organized and funded by right-wing forces, including white nationalists and Christian fundamentalists, especially from the United States, not Canadian, and that most of them were not actual truck drivers, they were the owners of trucking companies, and progressives, liberals say, they their goals were pretty scary. They were, their manifesto called for overthrowing the government of Canada. Um, are the progressives right about this? Yes, no, the, the, the progressives are very right in terms of the organizing of it. Um, and uh, to be clear, like um, there's been a lot of sort of anti-hate groups uh, and anti-fascist groups that have done a lot of exhaustive research into uh, the people who organized it, who are very familiar faces to people who follow the right in Canada. And we have people who have previously led anti-Indigenous marches, opposition to the carbon tax to deal with climate. And I think very interestingly, uh, some of the key protesters worked as strike breakers and have tried to break strikes. So that should be your first clue as to what is going on. Now, there was a leak from a Christian crowdsourcing that revealed the funding for this. And they did get a broad sort of crowdsourced of like many thousands of people in both Canada and the United States. There are more people in the United States and Canada, like about more than uh, nearly half of the people donating from the United States, uh, maybe 40% from Canada and the rest from around the world. Canadians donated more money individually. So some of the donors include like, you know, a California billionaire, but they also, yeah, if you look at the people who donated, the Washington Post did a very good report. You know, they come in the United States come from predominantly well-to-do sub suburbs that lean Republican. And this makes sense if one understands the crowdsourcing, crowdfunding came from groups that were tied to the evangelical church and to conservative Christianity. So I think the way to perhaps understand this is that what this was as a far-right activist who are very well networked on social media and networked within the evangelical Christian churches throughout North America uh, were able to do this with, you know, financing from the old uh, Marxist system you would call the petty bourgeoisie. Yes. Uh, some of the people who are very rich, but many of them are predominantly the uh, owners of family-owned businesses. And including the owners of these trucking firms, they're, guy, they're people who own trucks and then hire uh, drivers to drive them. And there's a big distinction between that and the working class. I mean, these are the people that employ workers, they're not workers. And I can speak to some autobiographical depth on this because I, I have relatives who are truckers uh, as drivers. And uh, they're South Asian like I am. And 20% of the truck drivers uh, in Canada are South Asian. And many more are from Africa and the Caribbean. It's a very racialized workforce. But if you actually look at the protest, it's like overwhelmingly white. Let me also ask about the the political goals of the protest. The defenders of the protest say they're just against the vaccine mandates. These guys spend 95% of their time alone in their truck. Why should they have to get vaccinated if they don't want to? 
the progressives say their manifesto called for the overthrow of the government of Canada. Who, who's right about this? The organizers of the campaign, some of them signed on to this memorandum of understanding. And what the memorandum of understanding called for was the dissolution of the current government, Pierre, uh, Justin Trudeau's government, uh, which was recently re-elected, dissolving that government, formation of a new government, a junta, if you will, consisting of the leaders of the convoy, yeah. The members of the Canadian Senate, which is an unelected body, largely ceremonial or advisory, and the governor general, who's a ceremonial position appointed by the Queen of England. It's a very reactionary sort of formation, to say the least. So, yeah, now they have since scrubbed that memorandum from the Internet. It's been screen saved. But that that, that is who was organizing it. Having said that, I mean, as the protests went along, I think they were very cagey. Um, initially, in the first days, they had you know a lot of swastikas and Confederate flags, which again, you know, this is Canada. Uh, <laughs> you, not, uh, you do see them, but I mean, it, it speaks to a particular type of politics. They they scrubbed all that stuff out, adopted a broader language of freedom, saying we're for freedom, and I think that, that maybe explains uh, the fact that the uh, broader swath of the population was willing to help pollsters. Well, we support the uh, freedom convoy. So. The leadership and the funding came from the far right, but nevertheless, nevertheless, what? Yeah, nevertheless, I mean, I think, and you, you know, you and I have both been involved in protests. And so we, we kind of like, and I think many of our listeners will have as well. And there's always a kind of distinction between the sort of, you know, advanced guard and leadership and the people who come to protests out of, you know, broader range of concerns. I remember um, our old colleague, at the nation, Christopher Hitchens tried to discredit the anti-war protest of 2003 by saying was well, led by Answer, you know, which is like a, a, a Leninist group of uh, who love North Korea. Now, very few of the people <laughs> out of those protests were concerned about North Korea one way or the other. And I think that in this case, something very similar that the um, the, the protests happened. There's it in the news. It's uh, and uh, uh, there's a, a broader swath of the Canadian population that's unhappy with the pandemic, unhappy with the government response, and unhappy maybe with the general direction of the country. So you're seeing polls where like a third of the country is saying that they support the freedom convoy. But I don't think that means that the third support a junta uh, to overthrow the government. A third of the country in opinion polls said they supported the truckers' protests. And who were these people? The pollster Frank Graves, uh, who works with the Liberal Party, has done some pretty good polling. So initially, it was very sort of class-oriented. It tended to be a broad swath of the um, non-college educated people, uh, lower income people with a lot of, to use a charge term, economic anxiety, people who felt very stressed out, which crossed racial lines. And I think that was very interesting that in the early days of the support, people of color uh, were more likely than uh, white Canadians to support the Freedom Convoy. I think that's changed in the last few days as you know, more news has come out. According to uh, Frank Graves, the more recent polling shows that it's the support for the Freedom Convoy is looking more like the conventional conservative voters, sort of older white male voters. But but certainly there was like um, the initial surge of support speaks to a, a broader working class discontent in Canada. And let's also talk about the government actions to stop the protests and the, the civil liberties issue here. This was the biggest police action in the history of Canada. 
Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act. I had never even heard of this before. It was passed in 1988. It requires an urgent and critical situation that seriously endangers the lives, health, or safety of Canadians, and lawful protests do not qualify. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association warned that invoking the Emergencies Act, quote, threatens our democracy and our civil liberties, close quote. And the premiers of Quebec, Manitoba, Alberta, and Saskatchewan said the emergency powers were not needed in their regions. And most dramatically, uh, Trudeau froze the bank accounts of the protesters. If if Trump froze the bank accounts of Black Lives Matter people who were protesting outside the White House, we'd be outraged, of course. So, so what about Trudeau invoking the Emergencies Act and freezing the bank accounts of the protesters? Yeah, no, it's a very radical move, and uh, I've been critical of it. But although I, th- I think it's important to understand that I think it really came out through uh, initial police inaction, that the police in Ottawa allowed the uh, convoy to take over, and the police in Windsor were not doing anything for a while. And there's a you know fair bit of evidence, and a lot of people on the left have noticed this observed police complicity. Or uh, I mean, I saw this video of like a cop who like uh, he was scuffed by one of the vehicles, and he he just politely told the driver, you know, don't hit me again. Right? I don't think <laughs> oh, one could easily imagine your listeners could easily imagine a cop in the United States saying that. So I think the police in action really forced Trudeau's hand. I don't know if the Emergency Act is very troubling. In Canada, we do have a history of this. Justin Trudeau's father in 1970 invoked the War Measures Act against the, um, after some terrorist acts by the uh, Quebecois nationalists. And that was a real suspension of civil liberties with hundreds of people jailed indefinitely. And it was a major trauma in the country that led to, you know, the rising strength of Quebec nationalism for many decades to come. And I think that's one big reason to uh, be concerned. Now, this is a more stripped down law. And I think part of the thinking behind it is that we are talking about very networked people. The convoy was able to go on so long, not just because these people have some money of their own, but that they were getting funding from all these outside sources. And so they wanted to put a stop to that. I just think that the existing law could have done it but didn't because of police complicity. And I think that if we're going to have a a reckoning, that is where it has to start. Why did the cops in uh, Ottawa let it get to the stage by the cops in Windsor. Um, I, I should mention out of interest of fairness, not all police were the same everywhere. In Vancouver and Ontario, the police were much more proactive and able to stop convoys from paralyzing the cities. I think it was a very unnecessary move, excessive, uh, and raises um, uh, civil liberties issues, uh, absolutely. And, and speaks to, I think, the broader failure of what's happened. I mean, I think this is a major stain on Canada. So the bottom line is that the truckers' protest was not a working-class movement, but it was able to harvest and exploit working-class anger, and will probably, which will probably continue unless the plight of poorer Canadians improves. So this so-called freedom convoy should be a wake-up call, not just for Canada, but for all of us. What do we need to do in response to this? What should the Canadian government do? Well, first of all, I think that there has to be like much more proactive measures dealing with the this stage of the pandemic. I feel like as in uh, maybe the United States and many other places, um, I think that uh, as the pandemic wore on, the early surge of government support 
has waned. And a lot of people feel like that the responsibility for the pandemic has been shifted to individuals. That, you know, like it's individual responsibility to get vaccinated and then to, you know, uh, carry the passport. And there's not a lot of government support. And I think that people still need a lot of support. And there could be like other stuff done in terms of paid vacation time, just to make it easier. So um, addressing those kind of economic issues is key. I think in terms of like thinking about the Cracker Convoy in the far right, um, I think there's a lot of things that like people, or, ordinary uh, organizers could do, anti-fascist networks. I think in Ottawa, it was very interesting. Before the Emergency Act, like when the police were so inactive, there were counter-protests starting and they were very effective in stopping more trucks from coming down into the downtown and in terms of like beating back on the Freedom Convoy. Uh, and in some degrees, a part of me has to think that the rise of counter-protests led to the Emergency Act, that the government did not want a situation where it was a freedom convoy versus like anti-fascist activists on the streets of the capital. Uh, but I actually think that like the the, the counter-protests were the most heartening thing about all this. Tucker Carlson is basically echoing Che Guevara and saying one, two, many convoys. Uh, <laughs> and I think that, you know, there's talk of convoys in Australia and New Zealand. There's a convoy going, heading towards DC now. I think that, you know, one would hope that police would be proactive and take the measures that they need to stop um, shutdowns. But I think that ordinary citizens, you know, who oppose this agenda have to also uh, organize. And I think that they can actually be very effective in uh, shutting this down. Jeet here wrote about the Canadian truckers protest for the nation. You can read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Jeet. This is great. Thank you. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Paul Farmer died on Monday. He was one of our heroes. He brought high quality health care to some of the poorest people in the world, starting in Haiti. He was only 62. For comment, we turn to Amy Willens. She was a friend of his. Amy, of course, is an award-winning writer, especially about Haiti. She's also the former Jerusalem Bureau Chief of The New Yorker and a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. And she teaches in the Literary Journalism Program at UC Irvine. Amy, thanks for talking with us today about your friend, Paul. Thanks, John. Well, what he achieved with Partners in Health, the organization he founded in 1987 is, I don't know what you can call it, amazing. I just looked up the statistics last year, 2.8 million outpatient visits in his clinics, 2.1 million women's health checkups around the world, over 2.1 million home visits conducted by community health workers. That's something like, I don't know, 7 million people helped in one year. He said, it's not about charity, it's about solidarity. I think that's a kind of a significant distinction. Absolutely, he never believed in just dumping things on people and then walking away. It was about accompaniment. The facts of his life, 
I guess you could call them unusual. <laughs> New York Times had a nice obit. They explained that when he was around 12, his father bought an old bus and fitted it with bunks, converting it to a mobile home. Paul, his five siblings, and his parents spent the next few years traveling mostly in Florida. One summer, he and his family worked alongside Haitian migrant workers picking oranges, listening as they chatted in Creole. That was Paul's first encounter with Haiti. I know he told you this story. Yes, he did. We were sitting with, I swear, we were sitting with his um, funders, the people who fund his endowed chair at Harvard, so very wealthy people. And Paul is sitting there and I've known him for years, but I've never like, you know, oh, Paul, what was it like growing up being you and things like that. And he starts telling me he lived in a bus. <laughs> with no, And I was just astonished because when you met him, you just thought, oh, this is a Harvard Medical School genius. He didn't seem like he had some kind of strangely interesting, exotic, early biographical history. And then he dumped that on my lap. <laughs> I was like, whoa, as usual with Paul, totally modestly given, like in the course of an actual real conversation, this piece of information about him floored me. So he went to Duke and after he graduated from college, he moved to Haiti and volunteered in a little town in the center of the country called Conge. Is that pronoun my pronouncing That's that right? right? Conge. This was at the end of the Duvalier dictatorship when Haiti's hospital system was so poor that patients had to pay for their own basic supplies like medical gloves or a blood transfusion if they wanted treatment. The New York Times quoted a letter to a friend. This is actually from the Tracy Kidder book about him where he wrote, it's not that I'm unhappy working here. The biggest problem is that the hospital is not for the poor. I'm taken aback. I really am. Everything has to be paid for in advance, close quote. So Paul Farmer decided to open a different kind of clinic. And now there are 16 in Haiti with a local staff of almost 7,000. Have you visited any of those? Oh, yeah. I visited the one in Conch where he had been um, living with Haitians before he started uh, Partners in Health. And you know, I walked in and there were Cuban doctors milling around. Cuban doctors are a huge big deal in the Caribbean. Beds and happy patients. And it wasn't designed for me to see. I just arrived with a friend of his and we were there. And, you know, it was it's pretty amazing because when you went to the uh, university hospital down in Port-au-Prince, it wasn't like that. It was two to a bed. People had to make their own food or have their parents bring their food in. Uh, if you didn't have family in the area, you didn't get much food to speak of. And at Conch, it was completely different. And then he founded this teaching hospital in Mirabale, 40 miles north of Port-au-Prince. That opened in 2013. It offers chemotherapy, a gleaming new CT scanner that costs almost a million bucks, three operating rooms with full-time trauma surgeons. And this is for poor people with difficult diseases who I understand pay about $1.50 a day for being treated there. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing. And it's an amazing thing when you see the hospital in Mirabale. It's just a big, huge hospital complex. And you can't believe you're in Haiti, to be honest. <laughs> and then uh, but it's it had its problems because 
it was built in the wake of the big earthquake in 2010. It was always Paul's ambition to have a really great teaching hospital with Haitian staff and Haitian doctors learning more and giving their expertise. But it was hard to keep going. It's hard to keep going no matter what you do in Haiti right now, especially because of insecurity, but also because insecurity means uh, difficulty getting power and not having power for a hospital is, is a disaster, as you can imagine, as we all know from Hurricane Katrina. And also, um, even when you have generators to supply power for you, you still have to have the gasoline to fuel the generators and the gangs sometimes control gasoline flow around the country. So it's hard. And it was hard for Paul to keep that hospital going at the level he really wanted it to be at, which is he's always imagining the top kind of care that we can get in the U.S. for his patients in Haiti. And that is not easy to do. You write in The Nation that when you've asked him for quotes for your stories about Haiti, he always said the same thing. What was it? I can remember calling him from so many different places and getting the same answer. I go like, Paul, you know, <laughs> there's this controversy in Haiti and it's so-and-so is saying that so-and-so is stealing all the energy from this person and this faction and that, you know, hospitals aren't getting any uh, electricity now. And he goes, oh, really? <laughs> and then he goes like, Amy, you know, I don't know anything about Haitian politics, he always used to say. I'm out in the countryside at Conge. I hang out with Haitians. We talk about the weather and the markets and, you know, which lady is bringing more charbon de bois to the market than which other lady. And we, I don't really know about this, but he would never say, I'm not giving you a quote. He would just not give me a quote. But <laughs> I course, never got a quote out of him. That's your first quote from Paul Farmer through me. <laughs> of course, he did know a lot about Haitian he politics. He knew a lot. And he knew, he knew more than I knew, certainly, about specific areas of Haitian politics, like the National Health Ministry, which he dealt with, unlike other NGOs, which came into Haiti health NGOs, non-governmental organizations from abroad, and would just establish their clinic, one clinic, and help one area and never talk to the Ministry of Health. Paul wanted to establish things that were sustainable. And the way he felt that you do that is you use whatever government is in place and you deal with them. And that was very hard and he knew all about that, but you know. It wasn't just you he didn't give quotes to, he didn't do this for anybody. And why exactly was that? To protect uh, his hospitals and to protect his clinics and to protect his staff, because he knew perfectly well that if you get into some big fight with some important person in Haiti, it can mean trouble, not just trouble the way like you might think of it in a developed country, but trouble that can be violent, that can mean turning off services to that hospital or that clinic forever, burning down things. Lots of bad things happen in Haiti. And he knew that. And he was just taking care of his people. You also write that you had disagreements with him about Jean-Bertrand Aristide, the first president of Haiti who was freely and fairly elected. What did you disagree about? Well, we both knew Aristide and still know Aristide, if I can say that about Paul, and were friendly with him on good terms. And uh, Paul was more friendly, I would say, because he wasn't a journalist. But Aristide was in the midst of many awful things in his second round at the presidency and, and toward the second time that there was a coup d'etat against him, green lighted by the U.S. and the foreign friends of Haiti. 
And I was nervous about it. And I didn't understand who was responsible for the violence. And I worried that, you know, Aristide was going down some sinkhole. And I would ask Paul about it. And Paul would just like freeze up. And then he would say, he's my friend. And that was it. No more conversation on that subject. What was he telling you when he said he's my friend? He was saying, I'm not going to consider the possibility that there's any wrongdoing on the part of a person I love. And that was the way Paul was. I mean, he wasn't going to do that. And, and, you know, I always thought there was an element too in his protection of Aristide defense of, if you can call silence a defense was that he was doing business with Aristide's government for his clinics. And it was the same reason. So the same reason he wouldn't give me quotes was the reason that even in private conversations, he was very careful. And what was he working on in Haiti for the past year? You said here more than once that things have gotten worse than ever in Haiti. And you quote him writing to you not long ago, I've got a pretty big target on my back, close quote. What was he talking about? Well, you know, he wasn't always in Haiti in the last years. He was in Rwanda a lot where he did the same thing with Partners in Health there, big hospital, lots of clinics. Um, And he had worked all over the world. Don't think it's just Rwanda and Haiti, Peru, uh, Russia, right after the fall of the wall. He did a lot of work on tuberculosis there. He was a global figure, but he hadn't been back to Haiti in a while. And then uh, President Moise was assassinated. And um, the, the insecurity that had been reigning in Haiti got worse even. And Uh, people who had been going down to Haiti, like me and Paul, we got scared. And he has that bigger target on his back than I have on my back. And he was afraid that he'd be kidnapped and and spirited away by exactly these factions that he would never talk to me about. Paul Farmer died in Rwanda. You said he had a big hospital there. What exactly was his connection there? I think he saw it as kind of another Haiti that was possibly going to be a little bit easier to work with because Haiti was just shifting and shifting and shifting under your feet. And it was impossible. And and Paul Kagame, the president of uh, Rwanda was a progressive sort of in the mold of Aristide without maybe all the problems of Aristide, (laughs) like coup d'etats by the Americans, which is hard, you know, to have in Rwanda, although things like that have been done in Africa. But so there was a somewhat Uh, an aura of stability around Kagame, who has also been seen as something of an authoritarian. But Paul figured he could get his hospitals built and help the Rwandan people. And he really, he did the same thing there. I forget the name of the town, Butari or something like that, that he did in Kanj. He was outside of town. He built the hospital. He had clinics and he started, you know, saving lives. To conclude here, I wonder if you could read from the end of your piece for The Nation. Balance was not his thing, but justice was. Paul was really the best that humanity ever offers from its complicated ranks. He was all too decent and generous. He was all too quick and perceptive. He felt pity and love for the stranger and the destitute and the outcast. Haiti helped him see ways to make the right things happen for those last. He started there and branched out, but he never forgot. Even though he died in Rwanda, he never really left Kanj. Paul Farmer, dead at 62. Amy Willens wrote about him for The Nation. You can read her at thenation.com. Amy, thanks for talking with us today about your friend Paul. 
Thank you for giving me the opportunity, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. Experience the empowering feeling of the Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now for April 1st. Lease the 2024 RX 350 Premium All-Wheel Drive for $5.28 a month for 36 months with $49.99 to its signing. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Call 1-800-USA-LEXUS for important lease offer and pricing details. Not all customers will qualify. Offer in the Lexus Eastern area and it's April 1st, 2024.